0: morning, Emmanuel. Open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we're entering uh, what's often called Holy Week, not because this week is holier than others, but because the things we remember are so particularly holy as we think about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And then next, uh, this Friday evening, think about his death on the cross. And then on Sunday, celebrate the resurrection. And so I want to begin those remembrances and think with you about the last week of Jesus' life beginning in John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. John 12, verse 12 through 19. You'll notice that uh, as we're turning to John's Gospel, chapter 12, we're entering the last week of Jesus' life. And for John, that's in chapter 12, which is about the midway point of his book. Because John's Gospel is consumed, about half of the Gospel is consumed with that final week. And it's just one more way of the word emphasizing what's the most important. It's this final week of his life, his death, and finally his resurrection but the spotlight goes on when we turn to John's Gospel. So John chapter 12, verse 12. <clears throat> the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Lord, we come before you. We ask you to please meet us as we hear your word. We know that as you speak to us and as I'm faithful to your word, it's Actually, you conversing with our souls, we pray that you would come now and deal with each of us personally, interact with us, talk to us, help us to understand what you have to say, and grow us into greater communion with you. Lord, we pray that you do this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, really, the bulk of what I want to do this morning is to tell you a story I just want to tell you the story that we've just read. And it's the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, on the last week of his life. This event that we've just read is really marking the first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And I want to just sort of give you a sense of what's in the air as we come to this time. And the first thing we notice about what's in the air, if you just uh, survey a little bit backwards from where we are, is that Jesus' life is now in serious and imminent danger. Because the Pharisees, who were the popular religious group of the day, we often think of the Pharisees as sort of just beating down the people, which they did, but they were also very popular among the people. People like the Pharisaical impulse. And the Pharisees who have been plaguing Jesus' whole life are now murderously set to kill him. In John chapter 11, verse 53, it says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now in one sense, this is, not new. In John 5, it says they were seeking to put him to death. And then in John 7, it says they were seeking to put him to death. But now we've entered the realm of concrete plans. If you're actually thinking about how it would be done, when it would be done, what mechanism would be used to actually execute the Lord Jesus Christ. John 11:57 says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus is essentially living in a police state where everyone is charged to be a spy and everyone has been charged to let the authorities know if they come across him so that they may arrest him. That's the air that Jesus is moving into when he moves into Jerusalem. The other um, part of the ambiance, the other part of the circumstances that we see here is that the crowds that Jesus is moving with are ecstatic. And they are ecstatic with what could only be described as revolutionary fervor. They are eager to see political change. From the earliest points of Jesus' ministry, Men and women latched on to him as a great leader to bring about the potential political upheaval they so longed for. In John chapter six, verse fifteen, Jesus had noticed that—that that that's what people liked about him. John six fifteen says, "Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king." Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he's aware that people have political aspirations for him. And here, those political aspirations are stirred up to a fever pitch. We hear that the crowds in... John chapter 12 verse 9 actually learn that Jesus was there. Now we're told in verse 9 there's already a large crowd and commentators debate just how large the crowd was in Jerusalem but the debates are between the hundreds of thousands and the millions and that's the kind of debate you get when the city is full and no one can count just how many people are there. So it's very clear that Jerusalem is full and packed out with people. They're all excited. But the main event this particular year is not just Passover, which was kind of a combination between Juneteenth and Independence Day and New Year's. It's celebrated when the Jews have been delivered from slavery. It's it's celebrated their beginning as a nation. It's celebrated the beginning of their new year. So here's the people at this major event. Everybody's flooded into the capital city, but the main event in the capital city is that Jesus, coming from the suburbs in Bethany, he's going to enter into town, and so the crowds are actually going out to him. And it says there in verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. And then verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So one more thing, is that not only is uh, there this massive crowd in Jerusalem, not only is Jesus sort of at the height of his popularity, but just recently he's really taken the cake when it comes to his miraculous ministry. In the past he's done amazing things, healed the blind, made the lame to walk, made bread for thousands who had no bread. But just recently, he's actually raised a man from the dead. Now, when you hear about Jesus making bread for thousands, you can ask them, did you eat any of the bread? And they yeah, I ate some of the bread. Oh, that's interesting, I guess that proves it happened. But in this case, you can actually meet Lazarus. There's actually a living witness to the power that Jesus has exerted in their midst. And so people are rushing off to see him. So the Pharisees are out to kill him, and the crowds are ecstatic. And the reason the crowds are ecstatic is not because in some evangelical way they want to see Jesus save them from their sins. They're looking for this long-waited-for political ruler that will deliver them from Roman oppression. And so they grab palm fronds, and the palm fronds are kind of interesting. Because uh, there was a long history in Israel of grabbing palms to celebrate the entrance of a ruler into a city. Uh, In the Feast of Tabernacles, in the book of Leviticus, God actually said you should get uh, palm fronds and you should wave them. This will be a way to have a good time. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. But more recently, palm fronds had become associated with a revolutionary spirit. Israel had been under oppression for hundreds of years and occasionally they would experience some mild deliverances. One of those deliverances came through what are called the Maccabeans. And when one of the Maccabean rulers delivered Israel from the Syrians, they all grabbed their palm fronds and welcomed him into Jerusalem. The palm frond really would be like waving the American flag after victory in Europe in World War II. But honestly, the palm frond would be even more like waving the Gadsden flag. Now many of you don't know what the Gadsden flag is, but you do know what the Gadsden flag is once I describe it to you. It's the flag that many Americans flew in 1775 in the Revolutionary War. It's yellow, it's got a coiled rattlesnake on it. And it says those famous words underneath it, don't tread upon me. And it was meant to say to King George and all the rest of his redcoats that we were not interested in being stepped on. There was no interest in this people being oppressed. And so what Jesus is walking into is literally a crowd of people waving their palm fronds and they're, they're arousing all the revolutionary spirit you can muster. Jesus is going to make Israel great again. Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. I mean, if a guy can make bread out of nothing, if a guy can raise the dead, then he can probably handle a Roman centurion. This is our man. Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. That's, that's the sort of. (laughs) moment that Jesus is walking into. Now what's stunning though is that up until now in in John's gospel Jesus has avoided these moments like the plague. Scrupulously avoided these moments. John chapter 2 people wanted to grab him. It says in John chapter two, but he knew what was in the heart of a man, so he did not entrust himself to these men. John chapter six, they came to take him by force to make him king, but he slipped away from the crowd. Every time this sort of revolutionary political spirit is seizing the people, Jesus scrupulously avoids the situation. There's a lesson. And here, he heads into it. But he heads into it, and this is pretty much my only point this morning, in a way that shows that while the Pharisees are murderous and the disciples are clueless and the crowds are focusing on all the wrong things, Jesus is humble. He comes in on a donkey. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I've imagined over the course of this week what it might have looked like had Jesus had a political advisory team, a cabinet. They've heard the crowds are swelling and forming. Tomorrow's gonna be a big day. Maybe your biggest, Jesus. And so they sit down around a table to discuss how they'll enter into this significant moment. And the war secretary is the first to speak, and he says, Jesus, you've got to understand, these Romans, they speak one language. They speak the language of power. That's the only language the Romans know. The Romans know how to conquer and kill and destroy. If you want to speak their language, if you want to show them that you're not just a king, but you're the king of kings, you need a war horse, you need an armed war horse, you need to be tall in the saddle, you need to enter in ready to show those Romans just Who's the boss? And Jesus says, I'm going to ride a donkey. And so the uh, PR representative steps forward and gives that sort of smirk to the war secretary. Like, we do like this sort of sincerity about him. That's one of our favorite things about this Jesus character. And so the PR person comes up and says, now, Jesus, you've got to understand the optics of this. Uh, If you go in, and I realize Jesus is a little anachronistic, but if you go in uh, on a donkey, it's gonna be kind of like uh, a great communist leader in a mayday parade with the missiles and the soldiers, and then they come in like on a a Walmart electric buggy. It's, It's just not the look you want. It's not what you're going for. It won't project the kind of gravitas the kind of power that you're gonna need to reign. Jesus says, I think I'll go in on a young donkey, maybe have its mom walk beside the donkey and ride the colt. Well, the religious advisor steps forward, says, now Jesus, think of the people they're really risking a great deal. They're, they're waving those palm fronds. They're now making themselves enemies of the state. The Romans will no doubt crack down on them. We read the Pharisees actually say to us in John 11 that they're afraid that if too much revolutionary fervor gets stirred up, the Romans will crack down and take the nation away from the Jews, micromanage it even more than they do. So Jesus, if you love people, if you love people, you'll ride a war horse because the people are ready for this moment, Jesus. They're ready, morale is high. And if you will get on the horse and and show them a display of your power, they'll be ready to come to you. You wanna bring in the kingdom, don't you? You wanna bring in the kingdom and be king of kings and king of all the nations. She's like, I think I need that donkey. And so he appears for what is easily the most celebrated moment of his life on an animal that I'm not aware of any country ever making their national animal. you know know any countries? The old donkey. The old (laughs) hee-haw. It's an animal that makes you look weak. It's an animal that makes you look low, animal that makes you look not ready for the moment. It's an animal that communicates with every fiber of its being, lowliness, and humility. How interesting that every time the crowds wanted to coronate him as king, he stepped out of the crowds. And then the one time he stuck around with the crowds that wanted to coronate him, he says loud and clear, not that kind of kingdom. The not that kind of kingdom. My kingdom will be a kingdom of humility, a, a kingdom of lowliness. I learned a... Uh, A new economic term this week. I was reading an essay on Christian economics and learned a new economic term signaling. Signaling. Signaling is when people buy something or wear something to just say, I'm crazy, filthy, rich. And one of the prize um, objects for sing- signaling, this is brought out by Dr. Rob Plummer at the S- S- Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, is the Birkin bag. Now a few of you may, may be aware of that, but most of you hopefully are not aware of the Birkin bag. The Birkin bag is its very practical, very supple leather. It's an excellent ladies handbag, it can be yours, for, for 35000 or a quarter million. 35000 on the low end. Everybody's gonna start somewhere. <laughs> quarter million on the high end. And when you look at a Birkin bag online, it doesn't look decidedly different than something you get at Target or Kate Spade or whatever. But if, if your bag says Birkin Anyone who knows what they're looking for knows what the signal means. That person's got a quarter million dollars to drop on a handbag. Jesus is signaling in the exact opposite direction. He's signaling, I'm coming to bring in a kingdom of humility. I'm coming to bring in a kingdom of lowliness. And he's not doing it like the Pharisees. When Jesus grabs the the donkey to signal that he's lowly, he's not trying to persuade you of something he's not. He's not fronting. He's actually displaying the reality of who he is. He said in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christian God is a humble God. We worship a humble Savior. Amen. It's, it's really the thing about Him that stands out above everything in the world of kings and gods that He should be lowly. And it's pretty much impossible to understand if you have the common misconception of humility. Very few people think rightly about humility. We tend to think of humility almost exclusively in negative terms. Oh, I'm nothing, I'm no big deal, I'm a loser, I'm a fool, I'm an idiot, I'm a sinner. At the root of humility is something great. John the Baptist exemplified humility when he said, I must become lesser. He must become great. Humility sees my weakness and his strength. Humility sees my finiteness and in his infinity. Humility is not just interested in getting down so you can, I can show how low I am, but it's interested in bowing down so he can be lifted up. When you don't have that understanding of humility, it's amazing what happens. You know, humble people are some of the most selfish people you'll ever meet when you're not thinking biblically about humility. We can get into a kind of amazing selfishness, can't we? When we're sort of flogging ourselves for our sins, beating ourselves up for our weaknesses, constantly bringing to mind all of our problems, and it's me, 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 me monster, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you never get out of it because you think something must be good. This is humility. Jesus lived to exalt the Father, that's humility Amen. He, exult, he lived to make a name for the father he got down on a donkey because he'd come to serve sinners to bring them to the father you ever seen cops on horses it's kind of cool it's a little bit weird to approach they want to be like four and a half feet over you But a guy on a donkey, I mean, you could strike up a conversation with that guy. You're pretty much eye to eye from the first minute. And he's sitting and the donkey's awkward. Jesus comes in for his grand entrance, humble and lowly on a donkey. And what he's signaling is not simply a moment in time in Jerusalem, but the entire thrust of his ministry until he's lying in the grave. You know, theologians often divide Christ's ministry into two parts. Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. Some of you have taught your kids the Baptist Catechism and you know, you get to question 30 and it says, well it doesn't say it quite like this, but it says, what's Christ's humiliation all about? That's the modern paraphrase. What's Christ's humiliation all about? And the answer that some of the greatest theologians of all time give us is this. Christ's humiliation consists in his being born. I'm going to keep reading, but just stop right there. I don't know about you, but my birth was the first moment of my exaltation. Okay, I had not existed, and then there I was. I know, I started nine months earlier, but that was a big deal for me, the first breath. I got a name that day. That, that, was a, that, that, that was going from nothing to something for me. Birth was a humiliation for the pre existent Son of God. He went from being surrounded by burning ones who said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, to lying in a barely cleaned out manger because there was no room in the inn. Had to relearn the alphabet. Christ's humiliation consists in this, being born in a low condition. Sorry, consisted in being born, made in a low condition. Christ grew up poor. Hey, what do you want to do this weekend? There's no money to do anything. He was poor. When Jesus' parents went to offer offerings for Jesus, they went for the poor man's version of the offering because they didn't have any money. Grew up limited, cramped. Made under the law. Now, he loved the law. The law was his idea, but all of a sudden it's a little different, isn't it? When, now, you, you must obey. You're a subject. Undergoing the miseries of this life. What's the main miseries of this life? People. Come on, you know that. Great He spent his life with People. Doubting him, lying about him, slandering him, betraying him. Not spared from any of it. And then he came under the wrath of God. His very own wrath. Wrath he understood from the other side and now is under on the cross. And the cursed death of a cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Jesus' whole trajectory, from the moment of his incarnation on, was down. And every time someone came along trying to lift him up, he he got out of there. And then the one time he allowed himself to be at the epicenter of a crowd, he made it clear he wasn't here to be the next Napoleon, Churchill, Alexander, you name it. Maccabees, he wasn't here for that. Utterly different kind of king. Utterly different kind of kingdom. The donkey is just one step on the path to the cross. It's one more part of his humiliation where he keeps putting himself down and not up. Now here's what I think is so amazing about that. What's so amazing about Jesus' humiliation, his willing humiliation, his humble humiliation, his? putting himself down, he's abasing himself, he's entering in on a donkey, a, a young donkey, is that the results for you and I are the elimination of fear in our lives. Do you see that in the passage? Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now let's go back to my little uh, cabinet, my little war room, my little Jesus elections committee for a second, and the secretary of war says, you got to come in in there on a big stallion because that's going to put fear in the hearts of the Romans and it'll make it so your people feel safe. Well, politically, that would have been true. Had Jesus flexed his muscles, Politically, at that moment, made it clear that he could take out any Roman any he wanted to any time, his people would have felt safe and free from fear. If he had cared for the people, like the religious advisor suggested, showed a big display of force, rallied those crowds, made it clear they could take over the Romans, then of course, politically, his people would have had less fear. But Jesus is actually... After the elimination of a different kind of fear. He wants to get rid of the fear that sinners have of approaching him. If you're honest, you're scared to come to God. If you're honest, you're terrified of coming to God. You and I both know that we have done enough things this morning, certainly enough things this year, and definitely enough things in this lifetime for God to bring down his wrath on our heads forever and ever. We've lied, cheated, stolen, not lived up to our own best resolves, failed our friends, gossiped about them, slandered them, lied, misspent our money, We're sinners, and if Jesus comes in on a war horse, nobody has more to fear than us. If Jesus comes in on a war horse towards us, saying, I'm here for war, then the people who are the enemies of his kingdom are us. It's humanity, humanity with all of its sin and all of its rebellion, all of its blindness, all of its selfishness, all of its pettiness, all of its, we couldn't keep each other as friends even if we had ideal circumstances. We're just always scattering, dividing, destroying. Jesus gets down on a donkey to say, you can come right here. I'm humble enough for you. I've come to die on the cross for sinners like you. The fear I want to eliminate is the fear of death and the fear of judgment and the fear of condemnation. The Bible actually says that that fear of death is what keeps you in sin. Hebrews chapter 2 says we're in lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. It's because we don't want to die in some miserable estate that we lie and worry and do all kinds of other things to make sure there's enough pleasure and prestige in our lives to make them worthwhile. We're terrified of just dying, facing God, coming under his judgment. But Jesus gets on a donkey so that he can go to be a different kind of king a king who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Amen. has your soul gotten scared of drawing near to god are you sort of at a distance from god because you're i don't I don't live up i'm not i'm not i haven't done enough i'm not i'm not good enough Jesus on a donkey is coming with a humility that's approachable by sinners. You can go to him. You know what the most amazing thing about God is? He has these amazing high and holy standards. He's too pure to have any evil in his presence. But do you know what else the Bible says? The other thing the Bible says is that he'll never, ever, ever turn away a sinner. It says a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. So there's the story. The Pharisees want him dead. The crowds want him for what he can do. And so that he can be a big political ruler to make it all better again without changing their hearts. The disciples are clueless. And he gets on a donkey to approach them as part of his humiliation. The humiliation that's gonna lead him to the cross, and it's one that sinners can come towards and be saved by. It's amazing. It's actually amazing the way this text is organized. It gives us three reactions to this story. There's three reactions to this story. I'll start with the last one, it's in verse 19. And, Boy, the Bible's true, but it's a lot more than true. It's, all, it's also like literary genius. And uh, John's gospel is the king of irony. John loves irony. And we see an example of that in the reaction of the Pharisees, verse 19. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, they're going to kind of be a discouragement poster for each other, they said to one another, you see you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Remember, the Pharisees are trying to crack down. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to, they're trying to stop this whole mess and contain it so they can keep their little piece of power and make their little place in the world. They're trying to keep it all under control, keep it all under wraps. And what, what do they say at the end of it? Nothing we're doing works. Nothing we attempt works. We tell all the people, tell us if you see him, we want to arrest him. And what happens? They all grab palm fronds and start waving them at him. And look, the whole world has gone at him. Now, there's like, there's like actually double layers of irony here. Because on one hand, the world really has gone at him. There's these crowds. But on the other hand, they don't know the half of it. Because what's gonna happen is they are actually in this frustration, desperation. They're going to succeed in killing him. And then they're gonna not succeed in keeping him dead. And then the world's really gonna go after him. Not for all the things he gives, but for the salvation he brings. In fact, I'd say that this gathering here is one example of the unstoppable force of Christ's kingdom advance. You can't stop humility. Humility is the one thing God says he always lifts up. God loves to exalt humility. God is into humility. Do you remember Philippians chapter two? What does Philippians chapter two say? Tells us this. The God, the Jesus was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I mean if anyone could have felt justified in, I don't need the rules. But he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is amazing. Jesus is like, give me a donkey. I wanna go down, and the more Jesus drives down, and after the donkey, I'm gonna to go to a garden and pray, and after a garden and pray, I'm gonna to go to a cross, and after a cross, I'm gonna to go to a grave, and after a grave, God is gonna lift me up, and God is gonna raise me to the right hand of the Father, and I will be exalted with the name that is above every name, that at my name, Jesus, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. God is drawn to humility, and exalts it, we read in the scriptures, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he, and he exalts the most humble man who ever lived as the king and lord and ruler of all. Which means that if you're against Jesus, if you sneer at him, if you ignore him like I did and mock him like I did before I became a Christian... Your life will be one frustration after another. As you pine for his word and his work to be destroyed and it just keeps advancing. The Pharisees, "Ah, what are we gonna do? We told the whole city to arrest him. Just keeps growing and it hasn't stopped for 2,000 years since. The second reaction that John gives us is is very interesting. It's a very interesting reaction. It's almost like you can't even figure out why it's here. It's the reaction of the crowds. Okay, so the crowds are waving their palm prongs. They got the don't tread upon me flag waving everywhere. They're ready for revolution. And then after Jesus gets on the donkey, all John does is tells us one more time why the crowd was there. He says in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now I don't know if you, what that does to you. I don't know what you think when you read that. But there's a way John would have you read that. John's a master storyteller, and you know when you're listening to a really good storyteller, and you're kind of listening, and you're like, I know where this is going. I, they're kind of giving me enough that I kind, of know, I kind of know where this is all leading. And they just give you a little, and a little, and a little, and you kind of feel encouraged that you, you figured it out, but you feel that way because they're kind of giving it to you. But anyway, that's sort of what, that's what John does. All throughout the Gospel of John, he keeps throwing shade on the crowds. The crowd's come, and it looks good. They all want to follow Jesus. And then John will say things like, they just want him for the signs. Uh, They tried to make him king, and he slipped away. And there's this constant kind of casting of aspersions on the crowd. Jesus actually does it himself in John 4, 48 and 49. He says to the crowd, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Paul actually still notices this about the Jews when he's commenting and. 1 Corinthians 1, he's like, Jews seek signs. The health and wealth gospel is not new, people. The love in Jesus for the miracles he can do, the love in Jesus for the wealth he can bring, the health he can bring, it's not new. And there's no sense in which being part of a Reformed church makes you exempt from it. All kinds of people with good visions of the sovereignty of God doubt the existence of God when he empties their bank account, destroys their health, eliminates the good church they were a part of, wrecks their relationships, allows them into any kind of Job-like reality. What John is saying here is, look, the crowds were after him because he did awesome things. He showed up on a donkey, but they were unfazed. This is a little disappointing. I love the, what would you think of Jesus? I like the bread. Bread, 8 out of 10. Raising a Lazarus, 11 out of 10. That was amazing. Donkey, not so much. (laughs) There's a theological term for that. It's called stumbling over the cross. It's called loving a lot of Jesus except when he starts pinpointing your sin and the humility he's going to exert to save you from it. Listen to me. Everyone in this room who does not love Jesus first and foremost because he saved a wicked sinner like them will eventually fall away. Because he will test you. He will give you things and take things away. And if you love those things more than you love him, you will split. I've been a Christian long enough to know that temptation in my own heart. I've I've been a Christian long enough to, to watch people I never thought would leave leave. Who stays? The ones who stay are the ones who don't fundamentally love his miraculous signs, but they love what those signs point to. They point to the one who gives us eyes to see his glory, They give us eyes to see our sin. They give us eyes to see his salvation. They give us eyes to believe that the greatest treasure is not anything he could give you in this life, not a good family, not good kids, not a good church, but heaven in his presence. When that's the core of the soul, the soul stays. And if God's working that core in you, I know it feels like he's hurting you. But I I promise you, he's doing you no harm. He is making sure that you have that faith more precious than gold. And that you'll receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Last thing. I want you to see the reaction of the disciples, the real disciples. And I don't think it's going to surprise you when I tell you this. The reaction of the real disciples to the humble Jesus is humble. The reaction of the the disciples to humble Jesus is humble. So look at this. It says, Jesus found a young donkey, verse 14, and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's Zechariah 9. It's a prophecy Jesus is fulfilling. And John tells us what kind of amazing theological fireworks were going off in his mind when this happened. He says, the disciples did not understand these things at first. So think about that. Peter, James, John, the rest of them lined up. Jesus marches into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hey, guys, what'd you think? Oh, poof. That was intense. Was a lot of people there today. It made no spiritual dent on them. Now, this is stunning. you got to listen to this. The greatest revelation of Jesus is not seeing him with your own eyes. You can see Jesus with your own eyes and be totally in the dark about what's going on. You can be front row. And we always think, oh, if only he was alive today. Really? Well, if, if only he was alive today and I was like, John, No, you could be right there. You could be right here. What's going on? Nothing. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Now, I want to get to what that means about the disciples, but I just, I can't stop. I can't go on without just telling you something about Jesus, Jesus was riding in on a colt and nobody was giving him likes, right? As Christians, we can hold some pretty popular opinions, but you throw them on Facebook and there'll be 10 or 15 of your friends who go ding, 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 ding. Like, you're, you know, like, yeah, you're a minority, but you're all, you're, oh, you're, you got it, you got it. That view on marriage, that view on humility, you know, the whole world thinks you're crazy, but ding, ding, I like you. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The crowds don't appreciate him. The Pharisees hate him. The disciples have no idea what's going on. There's only one person enjoying what Jesus is doing. And that's God. He says, this is why my my father loves me. Because I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is living not for the eyes of men. But he's living for the eyes of God. And it enables him to do what's beautiful and right even when no one notices at all. Back to the disciples, then we'll close. Disciples didn't understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, that is, when the puzzle had been put together, once all the pieces were in place, once he didn't just live, but he lived and died and risen again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, once the salvation was accomplished, once everything was in place, then they understood. And not only then they understood, but look at this. Then they remembered these things had been written. Listen to that. That, that is key, there's so much insight here, but how we got our Bibles and what the Bible does, but here, just listen to this. So here's the situation, okay? And I, I, I'm gonna just assume maybe this happened in the upper room before Pentecost, maybe it happened 40 years later, I don't know, you put it wherever you want it, but you just get the point, okay? Peter, James, and John, do you see that? He went on a donkey, that was interesting, I wouldn't have chosen that. What do you think was going on there? I don't know. What does that mean? I don't know. What did you read in your Bible this morning? Zechariah 9. What did that do for you? I actually just came to understand what I saw when I read the Bible. It was when I read the Bible that I understood Jesus, that's unreal. Do you follow what I'm saying? The clearest view of Jesus that the eyewitnesses of Jesus got was when they saw him through the lens of scripture. The same scripture you own. The same scripture you have. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Old Testament and it just keeps showing you him. The same glory that made them the kind of humble people. Hey, how are you going to write about yourself in this gospel, John? I'm going to say, I didn't know what was going on. And then Peter beat me in a foot race. No, anyway, sorry. The same, the same spirit that would possess Jonah to write Jonah. You ever thought about that? Talk about humility, right? Let me tell you the story of the time I was the worst prophet in the whole Old Testament. <laughs> Signed, Jonah. They read their Bibles and when they read their Bibles, they saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, not just from seeing his skin and flesh and blood, but from seeing him as the fulfillment of Scripture. And as we read our Bibles, and he surprises and shatters and shocks and destroys our view of what God should be like, and what kings should be like. And he replaces stallions with mules or donkeys and replaces pride with humility. We wind up seeing that and being able to grow in that same kind of humility ourselves so that you can obey even when no one's looking because you know you're doing the one thing that matters. You're exalting God. Let's pray. Praise you, Lord Jesus, for your great grace. Thank you for being willing to be misunderstood so we could understand. Thank you for humbling yourself, so we could be saved Help us to grow in real humility, not just that puts us down, but exalts you. Lord, we pray that you do this in Jesus' mighty name.